that show and reveal about our hearts. I thought about this with my kids. My kids share a room. It is my goal that they will share a room until they graduate. I don't know if I'll make it, but it's my goal. And I have some reasons for that I won't go into, but I just think their life is very privileged and it's okay for them to learn to work with another person, right? And so the big thing right now that you can do to annoy a boy is to touch their bed, right? So it goes something like this at night. Somebody walks over and, and the next thing you know, World War III is happening in the bedroom. He touched my bed! So the next kid's laying on his bed. He touched mine so I can jump on his. And now it's all, it's all broken loose because we don't touch each other's beds. That's the current quarrel in our home, right? So we can fight about anything. And it doesn't have to be a real big issue. And if we'll fight about the 10 cents in a budget, what do you think we do with the real issues? What do you think we do with the things that really matter? Well, in our talk today, we're going to be talking about my title, because we keep following that heavenly wisdom theme, is heavenly wisdom concerning conflict, slander, and arrogance. Because when most people preach this, they get to do it in like three, two or three sermons. So I just lumped all of them together. We have heavenly wisdom concerning conflict, slander, and arrogance. And we're going to have two points under that. Heavenly wisdom concerning conflict, slander, and arrogance is the title. And our first point is a friendship that God hates. The first point is a friendship that God hates. So see, in verses 1 through 6, even though it starts with talking about quarrels, the real crux of the matter and the heart of the issue is friendship with the world. And when we have friendship with the world, that is what is produced in these verses. When we have friendship with the world, that's when we're going to have the quarrels and the fighting and the covetousness and the pride in our hearts. Friendship with the world is the central truth. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So another word that we use to describe this friendship with the world is worldliness. When we love the world, we are being worldly. So what is worldliness? Rick Holland, a pastor I sat under for many years, defined this as worldliness is desiring anything in this world so much that you, would loo- that you lose contentment with God. Losing contentment in God, you will then pursue other worldly pleasures. i read that again. Worldliness is desiring anything in this world so much that you lose contentment in God. Losing contentment in God, you will pursue other worldly pleasures. So we've bought a lie that something else is going to satisfy us besides God. That something, there's something else we need, something that's going to make us happy, for lack of a better term, going to make us filled, make us restful, make us content besides God. And so when that thing is threatened, okay, so if I think that what are, what are things that this would be? It could be my ministry in my church. It could be my parenting. It could be my marriage. It could be my work life that I, that I find the satisfaction in. It could be friendships, money, food. It can be anything that we're finding that satisfaction in, that we find another identity in besides being in a relationship with Christ. So if my identity and my contentment is found in being a kindergarten teacher and somebody else is a better kindergarten teacher, I've got a problem. If someone joins this church and they're a super, super gifted women's ministry leader and teacher and I think that my identity is doing this job, I've got a problem, right? So now what do I do? Well, we do what James... Verse 4 says, we, caught, we quarrel, we fight, right? We desire and do not have, so we murder. We covet and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. We have, we don't have because we 
don't ask, right? But why can't we ask? Because there are some things <laughs> that you know it's wrong to have when you don't want to pray for it, right? <laughs> when, you, when you're not going to sit down there and say, oh, Lord, would you please remove that very godly person from their position that they're serving in so I can have it? When you won't verbalize that prayer, it's probably an indication that you're praying for the wrong thing, right? So you have not because you ask not. There, we even know in our hearts there are things we should not be asking God because it's wrong, right? That's how this plays out in our lives. So when we are worldly and we find our contentment and our joy and our satisfaction in something other than God, now we have to fight for that thing. We have to fight for our place. We have to um, fight for that position, that authority, however that looks. And, you know, I, I picked examples related to me. If it's money, your life is going to be seen by chasing that dream. Maybe your life has nothing to do with the church and everything to do with what you have to accomplish in your financial goals, right? And we could walk through every example I gave and how that could look a little differently for each example, but your life will be pursuing something else. And when that is threatened, you are going to be quarreling. You are going to be fighting against God. And we see what it produces, right? We see that this produces, it says, now, in, I believe, and commentators agree with me, that there wasn't real murder occurring in James Church. He would have dressed that a little bit differently, right? Like people were really killing each other in the aisles. No, this is another reference to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, um, I think it's verse, yeah, Matthew 5, 21, he says, when we have anger in our heart, we are murdering our brother. When we lust in our heart, we're committing adultery, right? Everything that we do starts in the heart. And while we see distinctions between them, God doesn't. So when that person just really, mm, you, you know, you just, I did just drive me, and you hate them and have anger in your heart, you're murdering them in your heart. And this was the attitude that James is addressing and confronting. And what is the, con so, so we have, this is worldliness, this is what worldliness looks like, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences, we've already talked about one, your prayers will not be answered because you're asking wrongly. So when we love the world, it instantly kills our communication with God. It kills our relationship and our prayer and dependency on him. When we love the world, God becomes our enemy. You can't love God and the world. And this is just that picture James keeps giving us, the way of worldly wisdom, the way of godly wisdom. He calls us adulterers if we love the world, right? That's how serious this is. You are turning, it's one or the other. I, I hate to even mention this, but to me it was a very clear picture. There's a show, I'm not somebody who was watching this show, but there's a show on, I think, TLC called Sister Wives. And it is, the, it is a Mormon man who has four wives. And they're trying to bring back the, the idea and make normalized in our society the idea of the polygamy is just another way we can show love. And since that show, I've, I've read, seen multiple articles and multiple kind of big names of people who are engaging in polygamy again, and it's okay because this is how we love. And I did one time just think, how, how is he selling this? And I watched a little bit of what he was saying. He just, he would claim that he loves all of his wives completely. <laughs> you can't, and, and, and I just can stop there. Do you see the analogy? You can't. You cannot love all these women the same. You can't even really love them, right? It is, it is a contradiction in terms. It is an impossibility. It by definition doesn't work. And if I just set the example before you, it becomes self-evident. God says the same thing. When you love the world, it's adultery. When you love, you can't love me and love the world. They are opposites. They are in contradiction with each other. They cannot coexist. They can't. So God becomes our enemy. And if we are proud, God opposes us. That means actively works against. I think sometimes we can think of opposition like, in my home, I have an Alabama fan and I have an Auburn fan, right? We're one of those homes. So one of my sons loves Auburn, Alabama. In fact, the whole family comes from Auburn, Alabama fan. And one is the Alabama 
university. So you can think they're, op they're in opposition, right? They're, they're team rivals. And we can think of it kind of innocuously, like it's not that serious, it's just rivalry and they're opposites and they're, on, they're in opposition to each other. But that's not what this means. It means God works against you. Do you want the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise creator of the world actively going against you? Because that's what it is when we're proud. And that's what happens when we love the world. If we are characterized by this, because remember, while James is addressing people in the church, he's also giving us these tests of faith to ask, are you really a believer? Are you really in the faith? So if you're care we all have quarrels and can be a believer, and there can be immature believers, but if this is a pattern and characteristic of your life, it's a wake-up call to ask, are you even saved? Are you even a believer? The message is that the arrogant and proud people do not acknowledge their dependence on God, but choose to live according to the order of the world and as enemies of God by contrast. God gives grace to lowly people who acknowledge their dependence on God. So in the first six verses, he's laid out this very clear picture. There's worldliness and the fights and quarrels, and, and they start internally. They start with our desires and our passions, right? Everything he describes starts in the heart. It is your desires, it is your passions that work out in these actions of fights and quarrels as we love the world system instead of God. But, and this is point two, a friendship God loves, right? A friendship God loves. So God hates the friendship where we love the world, but God loves a friendship when we follow him. And my um, Old Testament professor, Will, Dr. Will Varner, called this the six steps to success, right? There's always a book out there, right? However many steps to success, how to make it in the world. Well, here's God's plan for a right relationship with him. And he says it right here. The first one is to submit yourselves, therefore, to God in verse 7. Submit yourself to God. So a friendship that God loves Subpoint one, submit yourself, therefore, to God. What does it mean to submit to God? It means to obey his written will. It means to obey his word, where his will is communicated to us. It means, we've talked about it throughout this whole chapter, when trials come, we trust him and count it all joy. We work out our faith in deeds, not just giving lip service to it. We don't have favoritism, but we see all men made in the image of God. We control our speech because it controls the very course of our life. We reject the wisdom that is full of jealousy and envy, and we are filled with the wisdom that is peaceful and gentle and pure, right, from God. And then that gives us a heart that isn't full of this quarreling, right, but instead is submitting to and following God. Secondly, we resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We resist the devil. How do we, re how do we resist the devil? We looked at that in the lesson. You put on the full armor of God, right? Ephesians 6. You, in dependency, cling to his word and trust him. You can't resist the devil if you don't know God's word. You can't resist the devil. You won't know his schemes. You won't identify the worldliness. You won't recognize it. Satan clothes himself as an angel of light, right? He, he presents an alternative wisdom, and an alternative righteousness that looks good on the outside. He is a master at deception. He doesn't come up usually with a very like, here's evil, go do it. Here's good, ignore it. He makes the evil look good, right? So if you want to resist the devil, you have to be in the word. And that's, and when you look at the, in Ephesians 6, the full arm of God, it's all, it's the gospel of peace, it's the helmet of salvation, it's the breastplate of righteousness. It's knowing the word and applying that to your life. Third, we have to draw near to God. 
This is one of those precious promises in Scripture. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But I was reminded in my study this week that no one pursues friendship with God without great effort. No one pursues friendship with God without great effort. Friendship with the world doesn't require effort. It is easy. And because of our, and the world comes at us, so we are constantly fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So there's this three-pronged attack against us, and we can't stand against it without a friendship with God, but it does not happen easily. It must be pursued. It must be cultivated. We use the word devotions, right? Because we're supposed to be devoted. When you're devoted to someone, you don't remind yourself to be devoted, right? You don't, oh, they're going to get 10 minutes of my time today. Oh, I haven't thought about them all week. I should probably talk to them. You want to characterize that as a devoted relationship, right? A devoted relationship is one where that's what your life is all about. Sorry. That's what your life is all about. That's what you're constantly thinking about. And that's how scripture describes our walk with God. We are to pray without ceasing that constant communion with him. We are to meditate on his word day and night. We are to think about it all the time. We're to teach it to our children when we walk, when we rise, when we sit. When scripture talks about how we are supposed to think about it, it is supposed to permeate every aspect of our life. It is supposed to reside in our hearts, Colossians 3.16, indwell, be at home. We are supposed to always have a mind that is being constantly renewed through thoughts and prayers of truth and praying and communing with God. That is what it takes to have friendship with the Lord. I remember, and it was not this Bible study, I'm not talking about anybody at this church, but I remember being part of a different Bible study, and a woman who had time in her life would come up to the Bible study leader and say, this lesson was longer than three pages. I will never do more than three pages. It's wrong to have a lesson that's longer than three pages. It was so defeating to the Bible study leader, but I remember thinking, she's going to stand before God and say that? I'm sorry, I could answer 35 questions, but I really couldn't study 36. That was too much studying your word. And there are times, I have had times, I always struggle when I give these examples because I don't want to put ever a legalistic burden that you think, well, if I love God, if I check the box that I read this much, or I should feel guilty because I didn't finish my lesson this week. There are weeks you don't finish your lesson. You're sick. You're caring for people. You're, but the attitude is an attitude of loving the word, meditating on the word, treasuring the word. There were times when I, especially when my babies were young, it's like, yay, I opened my Bible today. <laughs> there are seasons of life when you rely on what you've hidden in your heart, right? I'm not trying to give us a checklist, but there's an attitude that hungers for the word where it's your daily bread, and there's an attitude that says, reach my limit. And I don't ever want to stand before God saying, oh, I did enough. I read your Bible enough. I knew your word perfect. I'm never doing four pages of a lesson, right? And it was a consistent attitude with a certain group. We can't call it homework because that woman wouldn't come to a Bible study where they had to study, right? And that was a consistent battle that it was almost like we're trying to think, who could we possibly convince that studying God's word has value? and that that should be a priority in their life. And it was just, it was very disheartening, and yet it's pretty normal, right? It's pretty normal. So if we want friendship with God, you have to pursue it. I have to pursue it with great effort. You will sacrifice for it. There will be things you do not do for it. There will be 
events you miss for it. And you will never regret it because God will pay you back more than you could ever ask or imagine, which he promises over and over and over and over and over again. You will never outgive God, ever. After we draw near to God, we are to cleanse our hands and our hearts. And that just reminded me of our study of redemptive history. So just remember with me, those of you who are with us and those who weren't, just brief overview. Adam and Eve fall, right? And so Adam and Eve had perfect relationship with God in the garden. God would come and walk with them. And when they fell, one of the big things that we, one of the major parts of that collapse was God could no longer dwell with them. God could no longer come and have communion with them. But he made a promise that there was going to be one who was going to come, right? One who was going to come and he was going to reverse that because God wants to be with his people. And then through the patriarch's lives, he taught us the values and, and how we're supposed to relate to God. Through Abraham's life, he taught us we have to have faith in him. And in Jacob's life, he taught us that, remember the ladder going to heaven, that God is near to us. And by changing Jacob's name to Israel, he said God fights for us. And then with Judah and Joseph, he taught us that God turns curse to blessing. And so that gets us through Genesis, that God is showing the world who he is and, who, and what he wants of us, like who he is, and, and he wants us to have faith in him. Then we come to Exodus, and God has raised up a nation out of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he's redeemed them. He's purchased them and brought them out of Egypt, right? And he's given them their law, and they get the tabernacle. And what happens when they have the tabernacle? The glory of God comes and fills the tent, right? And now God is dwelling with his people again, showing that he can take us back to, he reversed the curse and take us back to Eden. But we have a problem, right? When we end of the book, so there's this tension, because Israel is not a holy nation, and they're not obedient people, but a holy God's living with them, so how is this going to last longer than about 10 minutes before he has to wipe them out, right? And that's what the book of Leviticus is about, how a holy God can dwell with unholy people, right? The sacrificial system. And over and over again, it's about the whole book of Leviticus is about holiness. You have to be holy in how you approach God and how you worship him. That's what all the sacrifices are. You don't come to God on your terms. You come how he says you have to be holy. And remember we even said that all the sacrifices, all of them are about worshiping God except for one. We tend to think that they're all about sin, but they're all about worship except for one is about sin, right? And so God says, here's how you're going to be holy and worship me. And then God says, and here's how you're going to have relationships with one another and be holy. And then God says, and here's how your year, your months, your festivals, and your private time needs to look because your personal life has to be holy to dwell with me. And there is not an aspect of life, both community, worship, private, that God does not demand holiness for relationship with him. And then that's what the rest of the Old Testament is about. Who can keep that standard? No one. No one. And that's what the sacrificial system is about. We keep failing and offering sacrifices, and we keep failing and offering sacrifices. And then comes Jesus, right? Then comes the one who died in our place, who God righteously judged and sovereignly judged, and we get his righteousness, and when we come to God, we come confessing our sins. We come in his holiness and righteousness. We come cleansing our hands and our hearts. Psalms 24, 3-4, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who does not lift up his soul to do what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. And if we're going to have, it just ties right into our fifth point here, if you're going to have a clean hand and clean heart, you have to be repentant which is what the next verse says, right? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's a picture of this grief and repentance over sin. 
In his commentary on James, um, the commentator McKnight said, first, repentance is about a person's relationship, his mind and behaviors before God. It is profoundly theological. And this is why this section begins and ends with the face of God. The second thing repentance is, is repentance leads to forgiveness that can be described in terms of purification. This repentant, third, repentance is both embodied and emotive, which is what I just read in verse 9. It's this laughter turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's true, it's, it's in our hearts and in our actions. And fourth, repentance leads to grace that elevates a person not into envy, but into peacemaking, love, and compassionate deeds. And when we're a repentant person, and this is the sixth step of success, we are a humble person, right? Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We are a person who sees ourselves in a right relationship with God. That's what humility is. Humility is seeing yourself before God and understanding how that relationship works, who he is, and therefore who you are and being profoundly grateful for his love and his forgiveness, and finding great, seeing his immeasurable worth keeps us from thinking that we're something, right? <laughs> keeps us from being puffed up. So point one was a friendship that God hates. And then I guess I kind of just ad-libbed, and point two was a friendship God loves. So now we'll have three points today. Point three is, um, verses 11 through 17, who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? So we go into this section now about how we speak about others and how we plan our lives. So in verses 11 and 12, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So... Under this, who do you think you are? I have two subpoints, and my first subpoint is, we are not God, the sovereign judge. We are not God, the sovereign sovereign judge. When we slander others, we put ourselves in a place of judgment. We put ourselves in a place that says, I am the authority who can determine the rightness of this matter and pass it on, and pass on my opinion. So, so what exactly is slander? How does it relate with, because sometimes you can read this passage and think, well, I should never say anything negative about anybody, and I should never make a judgment. You can't go through life not making a judgment. You have to make judgments in life. You have to make these calls. And there are serious situations that have to be addressed. So what is slander? Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Our judgments must be righteous. It goes on to say, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Again, in his commentary on James, Dr. Varner says, a person may actually speak against someone else or even criticize them and still speak the truth and not engage in slander. James himself, throughout this letter, is certainly speaking against his readers through his many pointed admonitions. The sin that is being condemned in verse 11 is the kind of speech that is both inaccurate and also damaging to someone's character and reputation. So it's information that is inaccurate and damaging to someone's character and reputation. And John Piper also says, I'm going to read it to you, it's too much to, um, to print out. Um, in an article on slander, he says that, 
Just give me one second. God hates slander. It is evil. That's why Paul lists it as a behavior of those who hate God and why James calls it demonic behavior. Slander occurs whenever someone says something untrue about someone else that results intentionally or unintentionally in damaging that someone else's reputation. And when it occurs, it becomes a divisive, discouraging, and confusing weight that often affects numerous people, sometimes many, many people. Because of its poisonous power, it is one of the adversary's chief strategies to divide relationships and deter and derail the mission of the church. We must be on guard against this closely clinging sin and frequently lay it aside. So if it's untrue, if it is to damage someone else and exalt yourself, if it is you have part of the story, right? We are not, and, and I like the um, ESV's tra- translation better than slander, we are not to speak evil of, right, one another. I have been in, sadly, multiple situations, but two situations come clearly to mind to me that I've been in where slander has occurred, and one was where a pastor was caught in sin, and to hide his sin, he discredited by lying and destroying the character of the man who caught him and spreading it through the whole congregation. And what was shocking to me, being personally involved in the situation, was that everybody believed the pastor and a handful of people asked the man if it was true. Men that he had served with, men that he had, it was a close church, in each other's homes, with each other's children, but... Now we're not going to even ask. And then all those people engaged in sharing that information, probably well-intentioned, probably sometimes gossip. You know, you need to be careful. So-and-so's, and they would share his bad character. Well, you can't trust him anymore because of his... But they didn't know, right? Then I've been in the opposite situation where a congregant has lied and defamed and spoken ill of a pastor and then spread it all over social media. A pastor that I, again, knew, involved in this situation to a degree, personally had talked to the people all involved in the situation, as it exploded over social media and got picked up by blogs and websites. It it just was huge. It was shocking to me to learn a couple of things. Um, One, it doesn't matter. No one cared to hear both sides of the story. She accused him. He was evil. End story. Pastors often can't defend themselves because of confidentiality, confidentiality as counselors, right? So because most of what he knew and could defend himself with happened in counseling, he couldn't say it unless it was actually going to go to court. So there's a lot of evil that happens on social media because you legally can tie the hands of people to not speak truth, right? Then the next part that was hard for me was a lot of us who knew the truth thought, well, he can't say it, we'll say it for him. Can't tell you how quickly those comments were deleted because it was evil and it was hateful because there's no way He could be innocent because we heard her story, right? Then people will take a fact like there was a police report. Well, the police report could have said, and he's innocent. And they would use the fact that it existed to prove their point. But no one knew what the police report said. And then on top of that, the most interesting, I think, part of this was some people had the nerve to go online and say, you know what, we really don't know both sides of the story. Maybe we shouldn't be commenting. Well, that's also hateful evil, too. You can't, you can't stand up for minding our own business anymore in our culture because we're all Christians standing up for truth and holding people accountable. I would caution you, because I have seen this happen time and time again, if you are not involved in the situation and you don't know both sides of the story, 
don't press share and don't comment. You don't know. And over and over again in my life, I have been privately convinced of the truth or accuracy of a situation, only to hear the other side and find out I was wrong. Or to find out there was just not black and white anymore. Maybe there was some truth on that situation, but it was not. It, it happens to me all the time. Yesterday, a kid came running up to me. He shoved me! Did you shove him? Yes. Why do you shove him? Well, he was shoving 10 other kids, and so finally someone had told him he had to stop him. Were you shoving 10 other kids? Yep. Did they ask you to stop? Yep. Okay, so if I had just been like, oh, he shoved you and had not pursued any further information, right? It was true he got shoved. I could have punished the one kid, but I'm really missing the big picture, right? That happens all the time. And the other thing I'm going to... I'll get off my soapbox in one more moment, but we have become a culture that cares more about how something is packaged than what it is. If it comes with a pretty bow, a nice wrapping, it doesn't matter if it's filled with dead men's bones. If you say truth in a kind of harsh, unkind way, well, I'm not going to listen to him anymore. I'm not going to follow him anymore. That, how, how dare he speak that way? That's not kind. And we care more that they said something true unkindly than that the other side is lying, is in sin. And I see this all the time in the church. Truth was said unkindly, we'll ignore the sin. We can't be people like that. We can't. All right, I'm off my soapbox. We're moving on. All right. So he says if we do this, James says, you become a judge of the law. How do we become judges? Again, um, Dr. Varner was very just said it so concisely, I'm going to quote him, the person who deliberately breaks a law and does not repent, thus slanders that law and also disrespects that law, since it is the essence of a law to require obedience. And he who refuses obedience, in effect says, it ought not be law. Please think about that. If you refuse obedience to God's word, you are in effect saying, it ought not be a law. Thus the one who slanders a brother, in effect, also slanders the law. The, writer, the law the writer has in mind is certainly the royal law of brotherhood mentioned in chapter 2, verse 8, which is referenced also in verse 12. This offense against the brother or the neighbor is an offense against God. So we're essentially saying by our actions that we're making a new law. This other law is not worth obedience to, and we are the judge over it. And what does James say about that? He says, there is only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge and destroy your neighbor? You can't save your neighbor. You can't destroy your neighbor in an ultimate sense. So who are you to sit in judgment of your neighbor? A word on this. This is not to say, and, and Piper again is very helpful here, um, there are situations that can even be damaging to a person's character that we have to talk about. What if there was abuse, right? What if there was, so he, so he said, um, Sometimes a person's real sins are of such a nature they must become public for the sake of justice and individual safety. Here are a few sample scenarios. Reporting confirmed documented sin and abuse to appropriate people in positions of authority who can do something about it. Participating as an appropriate person in spiritual and in some cases civil authority in an investigation, such as a report of someone's sinful, perhaps abusive behavior with the intent of either confronting that person or of clearing their good name discreetly and without unnecessary details, informing others of another's confirmed sinful or abusive behavior because without this knowledge, someone might suffer real harm. 
seeking pastoral counsel regarding how to navigate a complex and ambiguous situation, doing everything you can do to guard the reputation of a person in question from unnecessary damage. This is not saying that we can never expose sin or there's never a time to, but there is an attitude of difference when you are exposing and protecting and caring about the righteousness of God and when you're trying to take someone out, right? And I think we all can distinguish that. So two, so our first sub-point was we are not um, the sovereign judge. We are not God the sovereign judge. And we, number um, sub-point two here, we are not God the sovereign king. When we say that we are going to go here and do this, we're saying we're in control of our lives. So in verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So the worldly man, as you look through this passage, he chooses his time, he picks his place, he limits his stay, he plans his method, he calculates his profit, He's saying, here's how I'm going to live. Here's what I'm going to do. What is Proverbs 21, 7? It says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. In Dan's family, we play this history game. I think it's called chronology. It's been a while since we played. But you have his cards, and they have history facts on them. And when it's your turn, you're supposed to put it in the right place in the timeline. You're supposed to. And my father-in-law, who is an accountant and CPA and doesn't consider himself a history man, always jokes that the only date he knows is Black Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, right? Because he's an accountant. But if you think about it, on that day, the stock market's been booming. Everyone thinks that they have made it. They are, they are set for life. And they woke up that morning, and by the end of the day, people are jumping off buildings because they've lost everything. Right? I shared with you about my cousin Stephanie dying um, in the car accident earlier, when we were talk- earlier in our study of James. But that same summer, so Stephanie died in May, and then, I think it was, I can't remember, by June, the best man in our wedding, well, one of the groomsmen, I guess, in our wedding, his sister, parents, his two sisters and parents were killed in a car accident. And then in July, another good friend from college was killed. So we'd all been in the same ministry. We'd all been in the same college. We'd all been serving together our lives. And so three girls in their early 20s, gone. One whole family, except for this man, gone. None of them woke up that morning thinking, I'm going to die today. Right? And I'm not saying they were presuming upon the Lord in their life. But do you wake up and think, this is my last day? Ladies, all of us could meet Jesus today. You don't know what the road conditions are like. You don't know if there's a drunk driver. You don't know. Andrew, my son, yesterday was running to go outside to the playground. We were here for basketball practice and slid and split his head open because he hit a corner of a door jam. That was one of those normal kid accidents, right? Except for it was like nine stitches later or staples down his head. But it just reminds you, it didn't have to be a normal kid accident, right? You could trip and fall. I, I know a man who fell off a ladder doing normal work and he's gone. You don't think this is our last day. We don't think like that, but we should, right? This could be the last thing I ever teach. I might not make it back to the kid's school, and we're not supposed to live morbidly. We're supposed to live in acknowledgement that God is the one who chooses if we live, right? God is the one who gives life. And so what are we supposed to say? We are supposed to say, and I get into this from Dr. Varner because he had a nice little alliteration here. We should instead refer to God's will 
Acts 18.21, when Paul is leaving the Ephesian church, he says, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. So we should refer to God's will. Number two, we should defer to God's will. In Matthew 6.10, it says, we, he teaches, Jesus teaches us to pray and says, pray that your will will be done, right? We pray that fa- the Father's will will be done. So we refer to God's will, we defer to God's will, and we should prefer God's will. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but discern what the will of God is, right? Discern his will and be conformed to that. So as we come to the end here of our time in chapter four, I was reminded again this week, a pastor friend of ours said, the only people in his congregation and his biggest desire for his congregation is teachability because only the teachable person who spiritually grows is only the teachable person who matures. And that is his desire for his congregation. And so that is my desire and prayer for us, that we would be teachable. There's a lot to apply in this passage, right? There's a lot to think through that I've skimmed over. Um, But we need to live a life, going back to tying this all into the, the wisdom, the two paths, a life that is saturated in pursuing the friendship with God and living according to his will, which takes work and effort, and rejecting the worldliness that comes so easily. And we do that remembering the great love the Father has for us. How can we be righteous and how can we be a friend of God? Because he sent his son to die. Because Jesus purchased our friendship through his death where God righteously judged him and poured out his wrath on him. I have three precious boys and I wouldn't kill them for any of you. But God crushed his son so that we could be friends with God. It's worth working hard to have a relationship with God and fighting the worldliness that comes so easily. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the precious gift of salvation. Thank you that your love would crush your son for us. Thank you for loving us more than at this point I'm able to love. And thank you for being a friend to sinners. And I pray that we would be women who pursue a friendship with you and are teachable. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.